I am the Watcher. For eons I have dwelt on Earth's desolate moon. My sworn duty, observing this sector of the universe, recording the most momentous events, conflicts, tragedies, and triumphs of all who dwell therein. But now I've been furloughed and have lowered myself to introducing podcasts. Oh, the ignominy. And not just podcasts in this universe. Imagine what if Mephisto versus the podcasters had chosen another comic to critique, converse, and correlate. What if, indeed? Welcome back to Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos Podcast. I'm your host, Al Sedano. And this Halloween, like the last few years, we are participating in the Mephisto Podcasters crossover because Mephisto is back and decides that our lives are not interesting enough, even though it's 2020. So he is challenging us to go through this year, and we are doing that. But I'm not alone because this time we have with us Brian who's joined the crossover for the first time. Hey, Brian. Howdy. There's uh, there's no Thanos in this uh, comic book that we're about to talk about, so I can only imagine that I have been uh, kidnapped and tied to an altar and am about to be sacrificed for some reason. That's pretty accurate. Okay. <laughs> Just so long as we're clear. <laughs> yes. And, of course, if we're doing one of the crossovers, we can't do it without Tim Price. Hey, Tim. Hey, Al. I was, I was all set for this. I've got myself um, all ready to go. i but I was kind of disappointed because I was out trying to, you know, buy this painting that looked really kind of awesome. And uh, someone kind of like jabbed me in the stomach and knocked me out before I could put them in my bid. I was like, that was so lame. Why would they make do that? Hey, Clearly, you've never out. attended an auction before. This is yeah. standard, <laughs> standard operating procedure of these things, dude. I, I'm pretty sure auctions are not a full contact sport. I'm sorry. I just don't think that's how that works. <laughs> Is this one of the touch auctions? Is that it? It's not, it's not tackled. <laughs> Flag auctions. Flag auctions. Yes, yes. At least you guys lucked out. The first year we did this, Mephisto decided to capture us and stick us in Mylar bags and mail us. Ooh. So, What's wrong we with that? Folded, spindled, and mutilated is what you were saying? Basically, yes. Okay. <laughs> hey, you, if you don't keep the contents of the podcaster fresh... You know, they just start to go bad and stale. And it's like, no, who wants that? Nobody. I'm a stale podcaster. Ugh. I'm already stale getting a little yellowed around the edges. It's it's all right. I'm, I'm you know, uh, you're going to drop our CGC grading. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, th- we are not talking about something that features Adam or Thanos. But don't worry. Don't go away. This will still be good. We hope we are going to be talking of Dead of Night issue 11 featuring the Scarecrow. 
the first appearance of a character and the last issue of a series. Not unusual for Marvel in the 70s. No. No, and in fact, this was not the first time he was supposed to appear in a book, but those books got canceled. But we'll get to that in a bit. <laughs> but Sounds first, like a winning character right there. I know. <laughs> but it's a fun, I think it's a fun concept. But we will get to that in a second. Let's get the synopsis out of the way first, and then we can start talking about this. Drop synopsis here. Before I start the synopsis for this issue, I just want to let you know, I did not write this one. Um, I just not have been in a mood to write a synopsis for some reason the last week or so that I've been putting it off. So, giving up on writing it, and I am taking this from marvel.fandom.com. So whoever wrote this, thank you very much. Dead of Night, number 11. Enter the Scarecrow. Writer, Scott Edelman. Artist, Rico Rival. Colors, Glennis Ween. Letters, Marcos Paleo. Editor, Len Ween. Cover by Gil Kane, Bernie Wrightson, and Danny Crespi. Cover price, 25 cents. Cover dated August 1975. On sale date, May 3rd, 1975. You can find this reprinted in Eclipso number 60, which is a French reprint from 1977. Legion of Monsters hardcover from 2007. Essential Marvel Horror Volume 2 from 2008. Doctor Strange, Lords of Fear trade paperback from 2018. Marvel Horror on the Bus from 2019 and digitally on Comixology and Marvel Digital Comics Unlimited. Members of the Cult of Calamai break into a warehouse to steal a valued painting. The image on the painting, a macabre scarecrow, comes to life, leaps out of the painting, well, as you'll find out from our discussion of this issue, not really, and attacks the cult members. They try to stop him, but their bullets are ineffective. The scarecrow mercilessly kills the thieves, and peals of hollow laughter echo throughout the room. Sometime later, the Scarecrow returns to the painting, and the item is placed on display at an auction. A collector named Jess Duncan enters a bidding war with another collector named Gregor Rovic. Due to the actions of Jess's brother, Dave Monroe, Rovic fails to maintain his bid, and Jess wins the auction. That evening, Gregor Rovic and his colleagues adorn strange robes and masks. These are the symbols of the cult of Calamai. They break into Jess's studio apartment in Soho and attempt to steal the painting. What Jess doesn't realize is that beneath the picture of the Scarecrow is an image of the cult's sacred founder, Calamai. They steal the painting and kidnap Jess's friend, Harmony Maxwell. They bring her back to their secret lair, where they plan on using her for a human sacrifice to Calamai. The Scarecrow follows. He attacks Rovic, who tries to flee. Using his power over the elements, the Scarecrow animates a nearby tree, causing it to grab Rovic and his branches. The tree twists and bends the cult leader until it breaks every single bone in his body. By the time the police arrive... They cannot explain the strange grisly death. The Justice League wouldn't help him, so Batman formed a new team. These people of power are all looking for something, be it their past, or a purpose, or simply somewhere to fit in. These are the heroes for a troubled age. They are the Outsiders. We are the Outsiders! Covering Mike W. Barr's 1983 series from the very beginning, as they face villains no other team can, like Agent Orange, the Force of July, and the Nuclear Family. <laughs> Puns. 
This is The Outcasters, a Batman and the Outsiders podcast. Look for us with The Huntress Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Or listen at our website, thehuntresspodcast.com, and follow us on Twitter at BatOutcasters. We are The Outcasters, because to live outside the law, you must be honest. we're back i don't know if um how you guys read this if it had the uh, little text page that came with the issue the night mail yeah uh, the the two-page uh essay by scott edelman okay so it isn't there for you yes absolutely mm-hmm. okay good so for anyone who's obviously isn't reading that it was a character he came up with and apparently they were going to put it in some other books uh what was the first one they were going to do i know they were going to put it in giant size world oh they were first going to put it in monsters unleashed but that got canceled. And then they were going to put this as a backup feature in Giant Size Werewolf by Night. And that ah. got canceled. <laughs> <laughs> and then they put it here because this was uh, one of those Marvel trying to flood the market in the 70s books where they were just reprinting their old 50s and 60s horror comics. And they just, this was going on low sales, so they went to put something original in here. And so they did this, but this was the last issue. And then all he got after that was an issue of Marvel Spotlight. And then, of course, like all the horror characters, an appearance in Marvel 2 and 1. I like the bit at the end where Edelman says, Now the Scarecrow stalks the dead of night every two months. No, no, he doesn't. Um, that was a failure of prognostication there, Mr. Edelman. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, that was good. And Bloodstone battles Earth's mightiest creatures in the lands where monsters dwell. Like, maybe a little longer, but not for very much longer. <laughs> I think he got like two or three appearances in that book. Now, this was, I have to comment. This was my first time, my first exposure to a 1970s Marvel horror comic that did not involve Frankenstein, Werewolf by Night, or Gene Colan. Mm. <laughs> Which are generally the best ones. Especially the well, Gene right, Colan right. Ones. Those are the ones that have, those are the ones that have, um, stood the test of time and are therefore available for us to dip into more freely. Oh yeah. I, I love that Tomb of Dracula run. I've, I've heard you recommend it most highly and, and I have read some of it myself. So, uh, yeah. So we're on that then. So Tim, what is your experience with these seventies Marvel horror books? Oh, I don't read them cause they're scaries. <laughs> <laughs> I look at this cover of this one too. And I was like, I, uh, uh, he's, it's the, the scaries. I don't, re- I don't know. No, it's like, I, <laughs> so I haven't read a whole lot of them. Um, I did, j- you know, just for some reason, uh, there was like this podcast crossover happening this month and another group of them were doing a two-parter that covered Tomb of Dracula meeting Dr. Strange. So I, I don't know how I got roped into that one. It's just a strange coincidence. Um, but yeah, so I read that one. But no, I haven't. I so honestly, no, I haven't not read a whole, uh, hardly any horror comics myself. Although it's like Tomb of Dracula has such a reputation, it's on my list to explore at some point. But I just haven't gotten there yet. That's yeah. Well, there's so many books out there. I would say if it's possible, because I know they don't make them anymore now, so the prices and some of them have gone up. I've loved reading them in the essentials because black and white 
no offense against whoever the colorist was, but black and white, they look amazing. The Gene Colon artwork mm. just stands out so uh, so much. And it really, uh, really um, enhances the mood. You you gave me that advice uh, actually a couple of years ago, and I took it. And I uh, tried reading some of the uh, the first uh, run of Tomb of Dracula in the black and white. And yeah, Al is correct on this one, people. Yeah. Wait, well, how, how often was that going to happen? <laughs> Once I, or twice. I've been I've been doing this with Al for as we discovered in a recent episode many years. And uh, I think that might be the first time those uh, words have come out of my mouth. So do your own math there. Well, so I guess that means that the show's canceled. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> it's it's another sign of the 2020 apocalypse. Oh, boy. But uh, if I can if I can uh, remark upon this cover. Yes, uh, the image, cover. the image aside, the image is 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 striking and cool. And I'm not 100 percent who 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 did it. But uh, a BW next to it, Bob Wyatt, maybe I've got the, the cover credits on Mike's Amazing World Comics say it's penciler Gil Kane and inker Bernie Wrightson. Oh, so so that would be the Wrightson. GK GK and BW. That's what's next to that. That's that's, that's that that that, that, that tracks. I didn't know what that that was a K because it just looked like a line with. Yeah, it looks like an O one to me, yeah. but. But now you but tell you me that. you got to turn your head sideways. Yeah, that's and what I'm doing, actually. Now, yeah, I can see that's a because you can't Because you can't turn your tablet sideways and, <laughs> without, without, the, without the image <laughs> rotating <laughs> and screwing you. Right. Um, but what I wanted to, wanted to point out about this. Okay, so this is 1975 mm-hmm. um, that this issue comes out. And first of all, we already discussed the failure of future uh, awareness. Uh, so what I really like, though, is given that this uh, character had already been attempted to be born into comics once without success, and they finally got it here in what turned out to be the last issue. And I, I imagine that the uh, someone in management or editorial had to have been aware on some level that this wasn't exactly like a a, a world beater of a new property here. But in the traditional marvel manner i love that they give it the the 110 percent promotion anyway with the blurb all new marveldom's number one shock star yeah number one all new number one like this is it we are introducing the best new thing you are ever going to see they are telling us i mean i have to believe that they are consciously lying to some extent but i admire them for the stan lee-esque promotion anyway that's exactly what I was thinking. That Stan Lee is uh, definitely has his uh, fingers on the pulse of how they're uh, <laughs> doing this particular word here, and also uh, more than a little bit of legal chicanery going on because uh, maybe he's the only Marvel shock star they have right now. <laughs> well, so Dracula was so it's like number point. one of one. Yes. Okay. I, I think it was participation also- award for shock star. I also think they were trying to make people think this is a first issue of it. Mm. Since this was oh, the first yes. His, yes. That's, his run. That's right there. Mm-hmm. So and that's and why, yeah. It's, and it's right there, right at the part where like it would probably be sticking up above the uh the spinner rack. Mm-hmm. So you would see that number one right above whatever book was underneath it on the spinner rack. But the other um uh, I uh sort of notion that I had hold on just one second. I wish to uh 
look up. Uh, damn it. Sorry. Give me one. Give me one second to look up a bit of uh, knowledge here that I want to use to make my sort of joke that I should have looked up beforehand. I'll talk amongst yourselves. I'll yeah, you exactly. To- give you a topic. <laughs> OK. OK. So, okay, so my joke just got. Come on, man. My joke just got ruined by fact. So anyway, here's what I was going to say. Here's what I was gonna say. Uh-huh. I'm going to make the joke anyway. So damn facts. Uh, you know, reality is such a bummer. OK, so uh, the other thing is that by this time, comics had kind of become their own thing. Superheroes were 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 the thing and blah, 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 blah. But they did come out of the pulps and the pulps had always been kind of uh, nasty, uh, like low rent kind of. I mean, the word pulp took on its its meaning in that sense for a reason, you know, and I think a lot of people will always kind of look down on the pulps as like sensational. You know, I mean, I'm thinking back to the true like the police action kind of pulps that you had in the in the 40s and 50s that um the reason I bring it up is because so here on the cover, the text reads a fearsome night prowler versus a centuries old cult of blood fires of rebirth fires of death and i'm thinking to myself okay so we've put the words blood and death on the cover of a comic book here in 1975 and if i'm i know i always reference the theoretical 11 year old uh, audience member when i uh, talk about the covers and the sales of these things when we podcast but if i'm that kid walking into the drugstore or whatever and looking at this thing on the spinner rack i'm like ooh blood ooh death i am totally spending my quarter on this comic book and i was going to say that therefore poor frederick wertheim wertham is spinning in his grave but since he didn't die until 1981 he wasn't actually in a grave to spin in yet so i'm sure he was just somewhere having a seizure just on general (laughs) principle so (laughs) i I think with the with the tone that you're talking about here is that this was probably prevalent all over the marvel comics horror line and dc comics horror line at this time so i'm sure he had plenty of reasons to wring his hands in impotent horror mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. anger not like, the kind of horror what? that the books what? were going for but no no think of the children right exactly <laughs> but we still had a comics code authority seal on it which just indicates uh the uh, at this point the grip of the comics code the the strictness of the comics code is clearly already loosening i mean we know it had already loosened some which allowed all of these horror comics to come into existence in the first place but it's like man that's a pretty exclamation pointy uh, reinforcement of that entire historic trend right there yeah any more on the cover before we go forward uh, just that I love that. I mean, we know what the, we're going to talk about, what the story is inside inside the book. But I just kind of love the dude that the that the scarecrow is clearly like choking. I love the tongue sticking. Yeah. Out. Yes, it's like it's for for 1975 comics code approved horror comic. That's a pretty graphic indication of what's going on here. That's true. because I mean, there he is. Basically, you can see he's killing the guy on the cover. I mean, even though the co is easing up a bit, you didn't see that a lot. I mean, even a couple years later with, let's say, you're starting, you know, starting to get anti-heroes like Wolverine and stuff or the Punisher, right, but you right. really get to see them much on the cover actually doing what they do. And like for the Punisher, for the most part, was he didn't have his own series yet. So he's basically used as an antagonist in like Spider-Man and Daredevil. 
mm-hmm. so he wasn't the good guy. Mm-hmm. And Wolverine, it's not like you would see him killing people on the cover. You know, I mean, obviously he was just X Men would have been coming out this year with Wolverine joining, but I mean, going up to like at least the next several years, you don't see him killing people on the cover. This was pretty. I mean, ahead of this time, this is something you would see like on a '90s cover. Right. That's mm-hmm. that's that's kind of kind of, and I guess they got away with it because uh, they have the the struggling woman there on the ground, and I guess it was it gave enough a clear enough impression that the scarecrow is actually saving this woman from the dude uh, to get away with it, but just something that struck me. Perhaps, although I mean, if you're just looking at the cover, do you know he's saving or do you know he's attacking both of them? You don't. You must look inside to find out. So let's do that. So, so I, I love this first page. We got the guys in the goat head masks and the robes just running down the street. Makes yep. me think of the pagan guys from the uh, Dragnet movie. Don't forget your goat leggings. Ah, yes. Well, I'll get to what my uh, my my pop culture uh, reference point is a little later on when it's uh, a little clearer. But yeah, I like and and. Already you've got that, I think it was very common in the horror comics, but uh, it was very much a 1970s comic book thing, the second person narration. You've already got kind of got that going on, you know, you don't understand this, you don't realize, but you will find it. Like, all that oh, sort yeah. of addressing mm-hmm. the reader kind of stuff. The, the one I remember, I think about the most when I hear that is Iron Fist series. Ah, I saw that a lot. Claremont used that a lot in the Iron Fist series. You are the Iron Fist. (laughs) See, I just I just remember that uh, that that uh, issue of X-Men shortly after Giant Size X-Men when uh, Cyclops is wandering around the uh, the woods and the. the, Oh, 96. The. The, the the demon wanted right not. right and and the entire like mm. like yeah and claremont again just like abusing the hell out of the second person narration uh trope there <laughs> well that would make sense probably that was about 75 76 so even shortly after his iron fist run right 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 because mm-hmm. i think iron fist was like 75 or around the same time so he would been using that there too so he probably was on a he was on a roll but the narration informs us that the Rams headed dudes are rushing towards evil. And I, again, I just like to note the, uh, the, the scenery here is such a prototypical 1970s city street. It's like, this is what cities looked like in comics then. And I, 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 at this point, despite the context at this point, there's such a nostalgia factor, uh, attached to that, that seeing, uh, pages like this always gives me a kind of a warm fuzzy, like sort of ah, oh, that's that's the good stuff right there. Yeah, this abandoned New York City street. I want to say New York, but I don't know if they actually call tell us what city it is in the issue. No, no, it's a very sort of a generic city. I mean, it's pr- probably not L.A., so it's probably like New York or Chicago or Detroit or something like that. Yeah, I just realized they never say that actually in there. But yes, yeah, so they break into this art gallery. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it, does say, a gallery. it does say gallery. The owner of this gallery. Yeah, yeah. And kill the guard looking for a pa- and looking for a painting. And of course, what happens? But the scarecrow comes out of the painting and kills them both. Yes. Well, uh, real quick, and, uh, real quick, just a note on 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 the second page of the story here. Um, when the goat headed dude pulls his uh, gun on the. Uh, 
security guard. Uh, that that is a very there's something about that panel of art that drew my like that was like kind of the first panel when I opened the book. That was the first panel that my eye was drawn to. There's something almost ahead of its time about that panel, the the way the hands and the head and even the gun are rendered is is like I guess I don't want to say detailed per se, but just fully fully rendered in a way that I'm don't think is um as common at this point in in comicdom as as it might eventually become. And it drew my eye and I really just like liked looking at that panel. No, that's true. I mean that gun looks a lot more a lot better, like you said rendered or realized that a lot of times they would just use kind of generic looking guns it's almost like he had that in front of him oh yeah yeah no he actually had the gun it was looking at it going okay how does that look that is that is a uh that is a gun that looks a lot like a couple of the ones i own so as a as a gun owner i can i can say wow i looked at that and i'm like and i and and it's not a quaint historical thing like yeah they're wearing ram's head and robes so you almost expect them to pull out like a flintlock or something like that no nah, he pulls he pulls out this uh this 9 millimeter uh uh semi-automatic looking thing and i'm like oh okay he's he's this is serious business right here well, you know, cults got to get with the times. They can't get left behind. Yeah, well, that, that is kind of the funny thing is I, I do like that train of thought because um, you would have almost thought from the headdress and the robes and everything that there'd be some like ceremonial dagger coming out or a right, exactly. weird kind of exotic looking weapon. And it almost by contrast is a modern looking uh, gun. So that's almost uh, almost very almost. jarring. Yeah, exactly. Almost uh, brutal in its ordinariness. Mm-hmm. And then the dialogue backs that right up because you know, again, you know, they're not they're not intoning stupid. Uh, uh, you know, you will be. Uh, they're, they're just like you know, you're too old to be making threats. You can't. They're almost like mafiosos with the with the dialogue there. So there's a lot of uh, uh, disconnect in the tone here, and I, I kind of like that. Yeah, they're the more thuggish members of the cult. It's like go break in this. You you two go break in here and steal stuff for me. Exactly the foot soldiers and all that. So yeah, the scarecrow comes out of the paint. It comes out of the painting. Now is that made clear here on page three that he comes out of the painting? Sort of. I mean, you can see you can kind of see on if you look on the page the third panel you can kind of see that that's the the scarecrow. Right. Because it's right. kind of blocked out by the war balloon. Mm-hmm. And, and then, then the guys behind you know the guy it looks like the guy is in front of it and the hand comes from out of there. And also we have the fact that the guard was leaning against it when he died. Is I'm, there something about that that we're getting into? Is that is there something about his death that summons the scarecrow? Or his blood gets on the painting and that's what invokes the magical mm-hmm. uh, incident here. That's what I was thinking at first when I was reading the book. That's the first thing I was thinking of. Like, is the guy's blood what's bringing the scarecrow to life? You know, kind of like a mm-hmm. Ghost Rider, Blood of the Innocent type thing. Never, it's never really said one way or the other. Uh, so, no. Now, looking up stuff about the Scarecrow online and on Marvel Wiki, he this is in Scarecrow. This, yeah, this Scarecrow. He is an and this cult and him are enemies. The cult of Kalumai. I keep on to say calamari. So, I, I <laughs> <laughs> so him and I that demon calamari. Kali? Like, like it was like I kept thinking about like co- the cult of Kali and the uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Like my brain kept mm-hmm. going there. 
I don't know whether it's the guy's death or the fact that it's the cult that's attacking, and therefore that's why he's reacting to the cult, because that's his ancient enemy. Well, as we're going to find out as we read through this, there's a lot of uh, missing like, like, like the fact that this was meant to be like the, an introduction and not a one shot. I think there's, there's so much left unexplained in this particular issue. And we're going to see that as we go along. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You don't really get much from him in this entire issue. He doesn't say anything. He just attacks. It's kind of like what I said last time. It's like Jason Voorhees, but as the good guy. Well, the anti the anti hero. This is a thing that w- that Marvel horror comics did a lot. Like I noticed that when I was reading Tomb of Dracula too. It's like Dracula only got like properly murderous, properly vampiric when he was facing like a like a drug dealer or something like that. So the those vestiges of the comics code lived on. But yeah, he's 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 an anti hero here for sure because he's only yeah. really beating up on the 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 actual bad guys. Yeah. But like I said, it's like Jason, like there's no personality. Co- you know, we don't really get anything from him. He just comes out to kill. That just happens to be his targets. Right. Or at least, mm-hmm. you know, he doesn't attack innocence at all. But yeah, we get a pretty brutal murder on that third page. I mean, we are not he is not tying them up and putting up the scarecrow signal for the cops to come. No, no. Right. He takes care of it himself, although it needs to be said, at least on page three, uh, the um, narration is doing a lot of the heavy lifting here. Um, I think the, the art will start to, uh, pick up some of the slack on the next page. Oh, with the actual fight. Yeah. When the guy starts Mm -hmm. shooting at him, like you see the gunshots passing through him. And as the narration points out again, no blood, not that there were gouts of blood, uh, bursting from wounds when they, uh, plug the cop, but no, that's true. We get more of the impact part of the art so you can see it's hitting him but you don't get that whole blood thing right but there's no but the narration notes no blood on the scarecrow but then he then he grabs the the other cultist and very very explicitly just snaps his neck ah yeah that was pretty rough and at first when i read this the next page the splash page with the credits i thought at first that was supposed to be him holding up the two cultists with the masks off but that's actually the painting Ah, very, oh. very interesting. Because hmm. when I read through the book, I'm the whole time I read through the whole issue the first time. I'm like, when do they show us the painting? Because she makes ex- the comment at the end, like, I don't think he was smiling in the last, you know, when she first saw it. Which she's wrong. He is here. But at first, I thought that's what it was. But then I realized, no, this is the painting. But here's it, my question. Hmm. Which, given given how much gets unexplained here, was that the painting before? Like. The painting that the that the guard got shot and slumped up against was that the painting then, or did it become the painting after this incident? That is possible, but it's definitely the painting that they're seeing in the uh, auction. Hmm. Well, right, right. That becomes that becomes clear on uh, on page six. There, uh, real quick, I just want to note that uh, the credits are given on uh, the splash page here, the the painting page, and when it says drawn by, I read, I'm reading it. And it says drawn by Rico Rival. That has to be a pen name. Someone like that. That's like four artists or something who didn't want to be credited or whatever, so they came up with it. And then I looked it up. It's like no, it's Rico Rival, and he's actually a. Uh, a penciler who worked for Marvel in the seventies. So yeah, um, oh, he was nice. one of the 
artists brought Dude, over from the Philippines. Right. Well, which, man, there were some great ones, weren't there? I'm thinking here, uh, Tony DiZuniga yes. and Ernie Chua mm-hmm. and and just some of these like some of the best artists that uh, that Marvel had in the in the 70s. Uh, I, my personal favorite was on all the Savage sort of Conan stuff. Like they oh, were just yeah. doing mm-hmm. killer work on that stuff, but yeah. So as like though my, my I leapt to a conclusion, and as usual, I was wrong. Yeah, but it's I do like not an illogical one, no. <laughs> especially given a... that it was lettered by Marcus. <laughs> yeah, 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 and he didn't have a lot of stuff in Marvel. I'm looking at. I mean, it looks like when I look up on Marvel database, it says comics that he's penciled. This issue, an issue Mar- Monsters Unleashed. Marvel Classic Comics featuring Prisoner Zenda, Man Thing, an issue of Man Thing, an issue of Doc Savage. So, and then there's like there's a couple of them. Well, so Scott like, Edelman it. never never really became a, a a Steve Englehart level writer either. So, no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This comic was doubly blessed by the fact that not only is it a character that barely appeared, it had creators that barely did a lot of stuff. He didn't do a lot of stuff either. I gotta say, I like the art in this issue. I'm I'm a little sad that we didn't get more of uh, Rico Rival's work because the art in this issue is is uh, very good for what it is. Yeah, and I do want to say real quick on that on this splash page, I do like how it works though, because it works both as kind of looking like him holding the two guys he he just killed, so it kind of ends the scene, but also because it becomes the the it's the painting, it works as a nice transition to the auction. Mm-hmm. So it has like mm-hmm. a du- it has a double yeah. feature. Yeah, like you could see if this was on on TV or in a film, like the camera would pull out from that to reveal uh, the like like to the auction scene. Exactly, that's exactly what I was thinking. So I do like that, and we get to the auction scene. So we get our actual human protagonist, who felt uh, very established to me. Yeah, but I believe this is their first appearances. And here's one weird thing I didn't realize until looking up and reading about it in the wiki later on. The two guys, okay, uh, Jess, the guy with the beard, and Dave, the one with the glasses, right, mm-hmm. are brothers. Jess Duncan guess, and Dave Monroe. Do you want to guess last names? But brothers. Yeah. Do you want to guess who's the older one? I'm going to guess Dave. Uh, yeah. The yeah. With the glasses, but the other guy looks almost like his father. The first time I read it, like, is this like their older friend? Mm-hmm. But that's the younger brother. Well, they, kind of, they they definitely kind of play that by giving him a beard and mustache, and they give him the black hair, but with the bluish highlights, which sometimes in, would kind of be uh, indicating graying. So I, I was totally thinking that myself too. Yeah. The only reason I guess Dave is because they put put so much energy in the dialogue into you know Dave when I left home. So you know that makes me think okay, he grew up and left the house and changed his last name or something oh that's that's true that that makes more sense now thinking about realizing it that way but yeah they do feel very uh like established characters like i want i mean i think this is their first appearance but i i I mean what they feel like to me frankly uh they feel like the three main characters of a uh, late 70s or early 80s bbc series about the supernatural, like supernatural investigators, it, you know, um, something like I, I, I mean, something Doctor Whoey or Lovejoy in its feel, but like they're they're investigating. I mean, I my brain went automatically to Lovejoy because of the art auction. Like they, the entire time I'm reading this, I'm just saying these three, and like like, and this is episode ten 
of the series because the way they're interacting with each other and with the audience just feels like we're expected to know backstory that plays into these interactions. And like, I really would like to see more of these, these three. It actually kind of Mm -hmm. seeing that now, when you say that now, it makes me think not a BBC series, but it makes me think almost like I'm catching some random episode back in the eighties of the Friday, the 13th TV series. Oh yeah. Interesting. Which is all I ever watched of that. I would just catch random episodes. It would be on, like, I think it was on, what, like, on Saturdays at, like, 6 or something. That was a good mm-hmm. show. I did watch it at the time. Even though I'm not a horror movie guy, I watched that one, and it, like, messed with my head in, in I guess, good <laughs> ways, or I don't know. Yeah, I well, really it, remember. And it also kind of just falls with any any classic, I, I like the Friday the 13th TV series, uh uh, analogy because it also fits nicely with any other TV anthology series, whether you go to Twilight Zone or Outer Limits or anything else like that. It's like you're just going to have these characters here for this one episode, but they don't spend the whole time with exposition of, and I am so and so, and we met each other back in da 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 da. And it's like, no, it's like we just jump right in and just yeah. go with it. Because it's not, like Brian said earlier, this is not the first issue. Uh, not sorry, first issue. This is the first issue. This is not a one-shot. This is not the pilot mm-hmm. the TV pilots. Right. This is just, even if it's the first episode, it's still just an episode. Yeah, But it had me wondering while I was reading it if these three were the main characters of Dead of Night. If, like, Dead of Night wasn't the kind of anthology series. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't know. I hadn't read any other issues of Dead of Night. So for all I knew, it's like every issue of Dead of Night had these three. Um like wandering through and encountering monsters or horrors or whatever. Uh, turns out I'm, I'm wrong about that, but they certainly give me that feel. So yeah, right. I'm looking they, at, sorry, real quick. I'm looking at the Marvel database yeah. and at least I clicked on the, the chest, the one with the beard. Yeah. This is his first appearance. So probably the other two have their first appearance as well here. Mm-hmm. They, it's also that whole thing about why they're here getting this painting. Why are they here in this auction in the first place? And they make it a big deal that Jess is after this painting and has been for a long time. Uh, and I, and we're just like jumping right into that. Yeah. No real no... reason. Why? Why yeah. does he care so yeah. badly about it that he's willing to outbid Severus Snape to get it? I don't know what that's about. <laughs> <laughs> and and this antagonist, too, feels more established than he actually is. Gregor Rovic. He, he mm-hmm. you know, and, and as you point out, like, we are not told why look at least it like it's like why does he want this painting so 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 very badly like and and why does Gregorovic want it so bad too like there's something about this painting that these people mm-hmm. wanted cuz don't forget when when they uh mess with poor gregor here i actually <laughs> it really is kind of dirty pool and like i guess we're supposed to hate him anyway so all's fair in love and war but he's like i will have that painting you know i want, I want that painting mr duncan and one way or the other i'm going to have it and it's like why 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 yeah i mean at least with gregor we get a reason later on the issue why he wants it mm-hmm. That is explained. But yeah, the Jess thing is just because. Well, you know, that's it's like, why he wants we, it because. We, we've all read these 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 comics for for a long time. And it's was any of us surprised to find out, oh, he's associated with the cult? Were any of us surprised to hear see that? Um no. actually I am surprised right now to find that out because I actually failed completely to mm-hmm. 
remember that he existed in the second half of the issue and only just now realized that that's the dude (laughs) that's the head cultist so as a matter of fact tim yes i am i am deeply surprised and shocked to learn that this guy is in fact connected to the cult sorry sorry, spoilers Spoilers for, for for five minutes from now Perhaps I should have read the comic before we hit record on this thing. (laughs) Oh, why would you want to do that? Uh, Spontaneity is overrated, apparently. But yeah, no, that is a bit of dirty pool. As the other Gregor's outbidding Jess and Dave's like, excuse me, I have to go to the bathroom. And then he leaves them alone and doesn't tell his brother. He just, I mean, blatantly just shoves elbows his guy in the gut. Yeah, he body checked him blatantly (laughs) just for him not to be able to bid anymore. Right, right. You know, no specifically who to... are these? Who are these people? Yeah, I was just like, "What the heck?" <laughs> you know, and 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 Harmony Maxwell, the female of the trio, is clearly a uh, uh, with Jess, and I imagine in the ongoing series that's going on on my head in my head now, featuring the three of these uh, people, went six seasons on the BBC. Dave is. <laughs> Secretly in love with Harmony, and much conflict arises out of that uh, love triangle. I don't. I almost wonder if that there's not. I don't run about the secrecy about it. I wonder. <laughs> I wonder if there's just a. They like. Oh yeah, we're all just happy. We're just a happy little group together. It's like okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a weird dynamic because I can see that too, and yet obviously Dave is obviously the guy who's like, "You're messing with my brother. I will break every finger in your hand." Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, he's like, I will mess with my brother completely. <laughs> I will break every finger in his hand, too, but you don't get to touch him. Oh, I'm not getting I'm not getting that vibe. I understand what you're going for, but I'm not getting that vibe at all. I don't think there's like even any jealousy about it. It's like, you know, it's like, oh, no, it's like we just, you know, sometimes Dave and Harmony have fun. And right, but, right. You know, but but Jess and her are the serious pair. Right. It's like yeah. They just have fun once in a while. It's like because she is, t- you know, she is like all over both of them the whole issue and she's like, got like just don't i don't judge it's like okay fine whatever you know it's the 70s dude that's you 70s know. there's paintings coming to life uh you know apparently people wear goat's heads in this in public i guess i don't know I, but i don't, I don't remember that i don't remember that in the 70s myself i don't remember that too much but you know i was oh, ten, so much so. and we're getting so much sort of implied backstory here because they've already made major like points in dialogue about a jess is always right and b dave left home like i remember that time just before i left home when you and it's like well are we meant to understand like what that what the importance of that statement is i don't know and yeah like you said before he's interrupted by the guy doing his villainous rant away and i'm kind of thinking of the uh did anyone ever watch the clerks cartoon uh the first episode only oh do you remember the uh the millionaire who lived there leonardo leonardo no actually frankly the only thing i remember from the clerks cartoon is uh how can this be bear is not anime (laughs) bear is driving the car Who's driving? Oh my God, Bear's driving. How can that be? <laughs> no, but yeah, he was the millionaire who owned the convenience store across the street. Oh. And he was always, he was their antagonist, basically. And he was always like, well played, clerks, well played. <laughs> Done in very much a bad 70s sort of villainous type of way. You know, he would have these schemes and 
they would somehow bungle it up by accident. He would act like it was intentional. Be like, well played, clerks. Well played. So now we move on into some some serious exposition. And now I have a, I have a nit to pick. Um, oh. Because... Uh, just one um because uh they go into the serious exposition and you know i've wanted this for a long time dave you never knew back then because you'd already left home more of this stuff and then he moves on he says you know it's it's funny i've been getting weird vibes from this canvas all afternoon it's like you wanted it for so long and yet you're only just now like picking up on that it's like i would have expected that to be the reason you wanted it so bad so there's a lot of things not matching up like right in that uh, little sequence there for me. Well, the, the one excuse I can give is that he didn't have the painting. Okay, fair. Today. So mm. if there were vibes coming from it, you know, unless it was so strong, it's coming from pictures of it. You might not get those weird vibes until you actually own it or near it. It's also a product, such a product of its time, because uh, they refer to the cult of Calumai as one of the more orthodox heresies. And it's like that sort of view of like <laughs> cults and heresies and like a hierarchy of secret societies was very much a thing that was in vogue like in the 60s and 70s that was maybe less prevalent in the culture, like when I finally, you know, got gained sentience <laughs> a little a little later in history mom dad i joined a cult what no no it's not one of those unorthodox heresies it's one of the orthodox ones it's okay right, right. it's it's established it's good it's a good cult well, they got nice mass. the robes are good they're flowing they're, they're comfy they're, they're they silk but then they uh, also like just refers to dave's having moved out on his own as a unicorn hunt and it's like that's kind of implying, wait, and th then else later it's like, well, you're working for a feature article on a magazine. They don't actually like name the magazine. It's like, is that legit? Is Dave really a writer slash reporter? Or is that just kind of the little tidbit that he's told Jess about what his life is, what he's doing with his life? Because uh, Dave is, knows a lot about that. Like we said, he's one talking about the uh, orthodox heresies and and he's done the research on what the painting is jess hasn't jess wants this painting and doesn't know anything about it well just that he wants this painting in the season two finale mm. of the bbc series it is revealed that dave <laughs> yeah. is in fact an agent for the government sent back to uh, keep tabs on his brother's dangerous activities and his brother actually doesn't have work for a magazine or own a magazine he just puts out a little zine on, on his own that he sent, sends to record shops and head right, shops right <laughs> He prints it up in his own apartment. <laughs> oh, so that's what I found at Sam Goody that time. Gotcha. Right, yeah. Ooh, Sam Goody, what a reference. There you go. What's a record? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, kid. Kid. <laughs> Anyone hear us? This is Trey Lawson. And I'm James Hickson. Anyone can hear this broadcast. We need your help. We've been kidnapped and imprisoned in a tomb by this creepy old undertaker named Mr. Gravely. And he's forcing us to review his collection of Marvel horror comics. Stuff like Tomb of Dracula. Werewolf by Night. Man-Thing. Ghost Rider. And so much more. If you can hear this, please contact our families. Tell them we can be found at... 
You can find James and Trey every other Wednesday at the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. See you there, Tomb Believers. <laughs> Okay, so, uh, yeah, so um, the cult, wow, uh, with absolutely zero sense of dramatic irony that you'd expect in a dude who supposedly uh, is is really good at tracking down mystical things. I get that sense from, from Jess. We can't all be winners, not when you're around, you know, so Jess is, like, very successful. He's all obsessed with the mystical, so he should know better than to say that a cult died out centuries ago, because that is always the cue for the cult that didn't die out centuries ago to come bursting through your door. Yeah, in full costume and everything. Like we're oh, here, absolutely. And we're and we're and we're uh, and we're geared for we're, you know we're we're in business clothes. Now, <laughs> those guys. I mean, there's the one guy in the robe and the mask, but then all the other guys are just wearing loincloths and a mask. So my question is now, did they walk down the street like this, or did they come dressed in regular clothes and change in the hallway? I'm going to – I have to guess the latter, given that the uh, the guys behind the leader are all, like, basically, like, naked with loincloths. Yeah. So that, you know, I can't imagine that they just trooped down the street in those clothes. They're also barefoot. That's what I'm so, saying. Yeah. yeah. So that's and, just that's uncomfortable. And this is 1970s New York. I'm I'm surprised that if they're walking down the street that they're not all like bleeding and hold, sitting down holding their feet going, got glass all over and mm-hmm. right, garbage in my foot. Like I gotta go to a doctor. I can't I can't do this. Can we do this cold attack later? And and I like the little caption here. Her words seem to ask, is this another of your childish jokes? So here's another little bit of backstory. Apparently Jess is, is fond of childish jokes, uh, or at least jokes that, that Harmony finds childish. So another, like, just a little bit of, of backstory sprinkled in there that we uh, are meant to incorporate into our view of these characters. And so they take out Jess from behind as they try and take the painting. And then we get to the part that surprised me, page, uh, the next page, where she does like some of the best fight. She fights back some of the, the best mm-hmm. out of all of them, grabs yeah. that lamp and yeah. just starts beating somebody with it, tosses it another guy's head. I mean, because reading it, like when you first get into the part with the three of them, you're like, OK, here's the two different guys. One's a little more brutal than the other. Serious. And you would think, well, this is the 70s. So she's the girl. That's her mm-hmm. job. Right. Mm-hmm. But she doesn't put up with this guy. You know, she doesn't just sit in the corner and scream. And yeah, no, that was a very, very pleasant surprise. Uh, yeah. Definitely dug that. Yeah, that was cool. I was like, good for her. Yeah. And they draw her and they, they depicted her really well in physically, too. It's like, you know, she's she's uh, she looks really hot in her outfit. And she's just swinging that thing. She's got such dynamic motion. And it. it's like the art really is singing. Right. No, yeah, she's this figure. She, what I like, you're exactly right. She doesn't fight like a girl. Like you can tell, like she's putting her, mm-hmm. like she's swinging from the hips. So, you know, mm-hmm. there's some power in her. Swing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm not going up against her in the batting cages. Good. That poor lamp has taken a beating by the time it's done there. It's like, Oh, oh yeah. I know. Right. <laughs> it's all twisted. And, <laughs> mm-hmm. and at least Dave gets a shot in, but then he gets taken out too. And I like. I actually a, thought he died there. Like it almost all, did look like it. Broken neck it did. Here now. Yeah, it almost did look like a neck snapping. 
And then I like the very superhero like surrender. She's like, uh, you know, she's surrounded now by all the the two guys are down. She's surrounded. She's like, uh, can I get you guys something to eat? Yeah, no, that's fantastic. I like I, I didn't that. Think so. Because yeah. even even that plays into the she's not just the screaming damsel in distress. Even even when she is backed into a corner and has been at least temporarily defeated, she still has spirit. She still has like some fight in her, and and that is uh, another. Uh, I, I definitely dug that. Was that a thing in the seventies? For I just I just don't know this enough of this genre. Is that is that a thing for the? Where female characters starting to get spunky. Oh, absolutely. This don't forget this time that at least in the superhero comics that that we got uh, like we referenced uh, Chris Claremont's Iron Fist before, and you know we had uh, uh, Misty Knight and Colleen Wing and mm-hmm. um, right, sure, yeah. So so there were definitely uh, you definitely had by the by 1975 you were definitely seeing seeing tough female characters who fought and and were and were were brave and spunky and talented and capable on their own i mean they they were often still you know just a little less successful than their male counterparts but you definitely mm-hmm. had uh, uh uh some of that going on already i was also kind of going, went getting even deeper into just like this is like a horror or horror adjacent kind of genre too is that that's where you had the scream queens from the first place yeah. So is were they getting away from that at this point or was it I, for, for that genre even specifically? I just don't know. Somewhat a bit. I mean, I, I don't I can't remember too much about Werewolf by Night, but I know Tomb of Dracula had Rachel Van Helsing and she was mm. one of the main and you know people chasing Dracula. Yeah, yeah. in my recollection of Werewolf by Night, the only um, uh, uh, Jack's girlfriend, whose name eludes me right now, she was a bit more of the sort of uh, more traditional horror uh, movie uh, girl that Tim's referencing here. Topaz, I want to Topaz, say? yes, Topaz. Mm, I mean, okay. she was always right in there with Jack, but you know, uh, she. Uh, what I recall of the Werewolf by Night stuff that I've read is, yeah, she was more just like, hey, Dracula just showed up. Let me scream about it. <laughs> yeah, and I think mm-hmm. she had some powers, but I think they were a bit more mystical. So she was a bit more of the stand-in point. Like she would still fight, but it was—it kind of makes me think of—I mean, it's a, only a few years later, but uh, when Miss Marvel joins mm-hmm. the Avengers, and it's something that they wrote that about Wonder Man thinking about it, watching her fight. It's like she doesn't just stand; she doesn't stand in point stuff. She actually goes off and hits somebody. Right, 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 yeah. right. Yeah. Different. So here is I like that's what she's doing. She's not just standing there or pointing or like using some kind of mystical powers to blast them. She's getting up there and walloping them right in the face, getting a bit more, you know, physical with it. So they uh, so they take off Harmony to be sacrificed. And this is where my major like, again, I was talking earlier about the well, I've also referenced BBC, but I also uh, was referencing the prevalence of like cults and things like that in the pop culture of the 1970s and i believe this was the same year or within the year that uh the doctor who episode the mask of mandragora was uh aired and that one was all about like hieronymus and the cult of mandragora and you know a, a lot of major set pieces and climactic moments in that uh episode 
surrounded the altar and the uh, almost sacrifice of Sarah Jane Smith. And so when I'm watching her laid out on the table here and the dude in the mask about to uh, do the sacrifice thing, and I'm like, this is pretty much stock footage from 1975 at this point, as far as I'm concerned. Okay, that was uh, September 1976, so only a year uh, later. Okay, so I was so, I was a little bit off. but yeah, Pretty you know, close. Yeah, yeah. It's mm-hmm. the same time period. But And this kind of goes with what your impression of maybe one of them is dead, because you see one person get up only. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And so don't by the tell way, you who it is. Yeah, and by the way, yeah. you also see that lamp is thoroughly beaten on the floor. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I didn't notice that before. That lamp is damaged. That is probably not going to work anymore. That's good. That's good continuity. And I have to give that to uh, I have to give that to Rico, the artist. I can't imagine that that was a detail that would have gotten um, specifically put into the plot or the script in any way, shape or form. So that came my my impression is that would have come entirely out of the visual storytelling skills of uh, the penciler. And if that is the case, I am I continue to be sad that I haven't seen more of this guy's work or that he didn't become more of an established uh, superstar within the circles that I'm familiar with, because this is some really high quality stuff here by my standards. Yeah, particularly I like that middle panel of just showing the two of them laying on the ground. Yeah, with the sun yeah, yeah. setting mm-hmm. and like the room's getting the room's getting has still has a lot of light, but it's getting dark and around the edges. Yeah, it's not entirely it's not entirely functional. There's some art here and i like that yeah no i do like that a lot and then we jump to the cult in their cult area wherever that is i guess they it's the 70s they probably had a big cottage industry their he-man woman haters clubhouse yeah obviously (laughs) now brian this is the guy from the beginning you're kidding spoilers out (laughs) i'm glad we i'm glad we saved that reveal for now Oh, that, uh, okay. Yes, yes. No, no. I, I, you know what? I own it. Brian is a moron. Brian, uh, Brian, uh, Brian made the poor choice, uh, not only to refer to himself in the third person, but also to attempt to read this comic book in the morning before he had drunk any coffee. And so this outcome is only to be expected. So, so coffee equals cognition. Oh, 100. Yes. Yeah, my 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 neurons at this point are composed entirely of like caffeine and um, orneriness. It's it's okay. (laughs) It's okay about that, but not putting these together because you know it's. um, I've I've encountered this phenomenon plenty of times in real life where it's like I you know I'll see people at my local gym wearing our gym clothes and I see them in public wearing different clothes I don't recognize them. So that's what this is. That's all, you know. He that's, just was wearing a suit before, and like here he's wearing, you know, his bathrobe and ready for a slumber party. So it's completely exactly. different. Different. Now, I mean, it's to, understandable. You, to be you, fair, I'll say it real quick and you can go. To be fair, with all the captions that we have in this book, which we do have a lot, there's nothing here that says his name. That's this is very true. That's very true. That's very true. Um. Although you'd think, you know, I, again, I praised the the artist so much that that Basil Rathbone meets Vincent Price sort of look, it really should have tipped me off. It really, you know, it, it's kind of unique. Well, I, I give you a little credit for the fact they don't say his name, which is kind of funny. You would think they would. Well, that's that's kind of what I've been talking about all along is the way like. This the way this story is told in this book, and I'm not necessarily making it a criticism per se. I'm just observing that the way the story is told in this book is very much like 
like we're expected to understand these things because this is the ep- this is the twenty third issue featuring this storyline or whatever. Oh, like, it's like that's what it feels like, right? So it's like it's not going out of its way to introduce a whole lot. No. Well, well I'm gonna I'm gonna actually have to just back up a step and say that back on page eight, where Gregor is shaking his cane in impotent fury they do have in a caption there saying in the uh, that they say gregor rovic at the bottom of that cap well right right and then at the end of the book not in this sequence here but in a few pages later um when he's being chased he's his name is said again in the caption box as well right and and i did 14 it even like starts at the very top of page 14 so it's it's there but it's also not part of the dialogue it's not reinforced a whole lot so it's you know we'll, and that's we'll, the, we'll give you we'll give you a break this time brian it's okay but that's it's earlier right. earl, earlier in the podcast when i no coffee did, when that's my when my brain did finally make that connection, that's specifically what I was remembering. Like, you know, because I was like, I remember that they named him Gregor Rovic at the end of the auction scene when he's shaking his cane, you know, as the mystery machine rolls away mm-hmm. and he tells, you know, those, those meddling kids that he's going to get them. Um, but at that particular moment when we were recording the podcast and I made the connection and I had my little epiphany here on the air, I was specifically remembering, wait a minute, at the end of the book, when they talk about, you know, the, the cops find his body and it's completely like wrecked and blah, blah, they do name him and it's Gregor Rovic. Oh my God. I can't believe I didn't put that together. Like, you know, before, Oh my God, I'm so stupid. So anyway, I just like, so yeah, I did remember that was specifically what I was remembering at that moment was, Oh my God, they name him that later on. Oh geez. Look at me. It's fine. We'll just flog you later. So, so we have the the obligatory villainous monologuing here, and I just I do have to uh, criticize like the rest of this comic book is told in a what I feel with a very sophisticated feel, both the way the characters are handled that I've been talking about ad nauseum the whole time, but also just the pacing and the dialogue and. Everything about the the flow of it has just felt very sophisticated, and as I keep pointing out, it feels very much like almost like a TV show, like an episode of a TV show that would be on on legitimately on TV in the 1970s. So when Harmony re- uh, responds to Gregor's villainous monologuing with "You slime sucker," like that's such a a a euphemistic or 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 almost like throwback kind of epithet that it really it, it seems almost out of place like it it actually jars my sensibility somewhat because all of a sudden you're like oh we're reading a comic book where they can't use really really like bad language that's oh i'm i'm being reminded of what i'm reading here momentarily so that was just a quick moment that that didn't entirely work for me at least you didn't tell him to go to blazes. <laughs> that might almost have worked better in this context. I'm not sure. <laughs> but yeah, he's going to sacrifice her to their god, which apparently is in, it's like uh, like Vigo is inside the painting. He's Vigo! You're like the buzzing of flies to him! Right, and it has mm-hmm. been covered over with the painting of the scarecrow, which is interesting. The blasphemous scarecrow. Yes. Right, it's right, like, right. And that, I like that statement there because um, 
since I hadn't, you know, I hadn't done any research. I don't know how to do research. What the heck? Uh, about this character is like that almost is like a little hint of what you were talking about before, Al. That 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 this cult and the scarecrow actually are at odds with each other, and that they're that they do know about him. Because yeah, I even he's... got that hint back way out the in the first sequence um, when one of the cultists, the, the cultist who first sees them and says and whispers, the scarecrow. That's a recognition statement, not saying, hey, a scarecrow. <laughs> yeah. Like, no, he knows he knows what he it's like. That's a record knowing what it is. It's like they're really they had some they had some they had some thoughts. It's it, it, they were building on something here. Yeah, they had some plans, and we can get to that in a little bit yeah. from what I looked up. Although some of their plans seem a little contradictory to me, but we'll get we'll get to that afterwards. <laughs> Just uh, even, <laughs> despite the reference to the scarecrow in this panel on page fourteen, I had actually at this point been so sucked into the flow of the story of uh, Jess, Dave, and Harmony versus the cult of Calami that. Um, I wasn't even thinking like I'd almost forgotten that the scarecrow was sort of the, the reason for this comic's existence. And at this point, I'm actually wondering how are they restoring the painting? Like so quickly art restoration is not a, you don't, you don't just like take a, take a kitchen towel to the canvas. Like what, but that's what he's got. He's it's got a process. Right he's got, so, so he's got the kitchen towel in one hand and he's probably got a bottle Windex in the other. Right, and they're and in such a way they will restore the painting to its original state. Um, Gregor likes I have to do questions. The, uh, <laughs> Gregor likes to go to the auctions. Maybe there's like an estate sale. It's like now we have here the equipment from the Living Eraser, and he's like, "Ooh, I have ah. a use for that." Uh, now, now, if I'm being serious for 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 just a moment, uh, heaven forfend. But if I'm oh. being serious, um, my guess here, my like sort of no prize fill in the blanks guess here would be that. In fact, uh, the painting was of Calami all along, even when it was in the gallery in the opening scene. And it only became a painting of the Scarecrow when, like, in that incident, which which I kind of, like, sort of alluded to earlier. Like, that is actually captured in the mystical abilities of the painting that is actually the Scarecrow uh, holding the two cultists that he killed in that scene in become the painting. Hmm. Yeah, fortunately the picture is too vague to see whether or not that's true or not in the beginning. Right. You just kind of see a big outline. Well, but considering well, how little is done in the beginning, yeah, back in the beginning, it's, it looked like the scarecrow was in that painting. And, you know, Jess has been wanting this painting, quote, all his life, unquote. So you'd figured so he'd know it was somewhere. The right. Yeah, the painting has to be somewhere. Of the, of the scarecrow has to be somewhere. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know, but anyway, I don't know. Yeah, it is a horror comic. So it's like the unexplained is kind of part of the gig. Yes. That's yes. True. Um, so the, we have the incense and it's very relaxing apparently, except for the fact that mm -hmm. she's about to be like murder sacrificed, but apparently it's a very relaxing, uh, sort of thing. And here we get our traditional dagger at least. Yes. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah. About time. I've, I've yeah. been waiting for them to get back on brand here. She's exactly. I like the little um, hint. He's like that shard. Of, you know, one shard of glass just falls down. Where is it? It is. It is in the lower. It is falling into the plate of incense okay. on the in the lower right hand corner of the panel. Because there's also like a little white smudge above Harmony's hand. And yeah, so that's, that's kind of. Just... I was like, what? 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 
Yeah, that was just a printing error, I'm guessing. Yeah, or or an attempt at uh, at breaking up the, the the pure black texture of the background. But it kind of makes me think that just that one shard falls, and it wasn't just a like you know Batman style falling like jumping through the skylight sort of thing. Because we had that initial shard, I'm just having pictures of the scarecrow up on the skylight like stomping on it, trying to break it before yeah. he jumps through. Mm-hmm. It. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what I was thinking. And then he finally breaks through, and we get a nice. The scarecrow jumping, doing the like you said, the Batman jumping through the skylight. Because you gotta have a skylight. What's the point otherwise? Right. And and I love I like the uh, the the cackling living incarnation of the painting they so despise. It's just there's so many like layers going on here. Yeah. Uh, that's one thing that I, I'll go back to the splash page real quick. Is that on the splash page they have the the scarecrow's laugh. So that's why it didn't seem like it was the painting to me back when we looked at the, at the at the splash page. But also, there were no flames in the gallery at that moment, so it doesn't work. But it's like still like the it's like the laugh of the scarecrow was there over the painting. It's like okay, that's why I I gotta ask you guys about about the, the character design of the scarecrow. Um, it came to me all of a sudden that this looked a whole lot like Tatterdemalion. Mm-hmm. From Werewolf by Night, but just a different huh. color scheme. Not oh. familiar with that character, so I, I know comment. of him from like a, a issue of Ohatmu, but I don't mm-hmm. think I've ever read anything with him. Uh, no, I wait, maybe him. I did. Wasn't he part of like the the Shrouds group? Yes, he was part okay. of Night Shift and Shrouds group. I first fa- found him in a uh, would have been like a Marvel team up where Spider Man and Werewolf by Night had to fight him. So that's where I first encountered him myself. I, I, but it's like, yeah, it's the same kind of thing. It's like you got the the, the long, large-brimmed hat, a scarf, lots of raggedness about him. But oddly, Paradamalian has the primary red and blue colors. And here we have our secondary orange, green, and brownish. The more villain colors, too. Yeah, very mm-hmm. villain colors on the Scarecrow. So it's an interesting just kind of uh, thematic similarity I don't really, I, I would not account it to being like there's any like deliberateness behind it at all. Um, but yeah. it's like, it's a look that works for the tone of this kind of book. You want a character who doesn't, you know, who's not pristine at all. This is a character who should look off. And we've got a fight scene here. And it's interesting to me because the scarecrow himself appears to just be engaging in sort of traditional superhero style fisticuffs, even though the narration in the next to last panel on page 15 here, uh, even as its owner quickly ends their misspent lives. So whatever he's doing is fatal, but it just looks like he's just like punching him up. What I like is that he brought a murder of crows with him to do his dirty work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they're all attacking. So even the ones he's not fighting are being attacked. So, so Gregor yeah. runs away and we get, Oh my God, this third, the, the big third panel on page 16 is the money shot right there. That is about as classic and effective a 1970s horror comic panel as you will find anywhere that one is yeah. just chef's kiss mm-hmm. and, and gregor looks very dracula like there yes and i mean the way the scarecrow looks you can almost change that to be a werewolf it looks like a werewolf versus a dracula with you know fighting over the mm. girl victim or like a frankenstein kind of pose Ooh, that too yeah yeah yeah, yeah. It's very much, a, either way, it's very much a classic monster fight. Mm-hmm. Right, right. It's like what you would imagine, you know, 
Dracula versus the Wolfman or Dracula versus Frankenstein from Universal could have used as like the poster for the movie. Now, I don't get why Harmony is unconscious here. I believe it's meant to be the incense mm. uh, had rendered her like had 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 tranquilized her before she was uh, ported away because I guess it was still doing its work while the uh, fight was going on. So when Gregor, by the mm-hmm. time Gregor grabs her and runs off, she has been sedated by the incense. Yeah, I, I guess. Mean, yeah, go with that because there's really no other reason. I didn't pick up on that, but you're right. I mean, other than that, there's no reason why she would have been unconscious. She was awake when he the glass yeah. was breaking. That's kind of the opposite, even that she was like angry and she's the fighter. She's a Spitfire character here. And it's like she's, you know, not not making it easy every step of the way. And like on the bottom of the panel where they like they've met where they do have mentioned the incense, if not for the danger, Harmony could almost drift off to sleep. So they even imply back on that page that she was not unconscious yet. Um, so I don't know. But like there's no way Gregor could carry her off otherwise. Yeah. So. Something something happened off. I'll just say I'll be, I'm fine with the idea that something happened off panel that knocked her unconscious because otherwise there's no way she would just she's not the fainting damsel. No, no. way. No, she is unconscious because of the power of plot necessity. She needs right. to be right. She no one needs to be a witness to this. She is basically playing the role of Scully happening to trip and fall down right before Mulder is going to see the aliens. Right. So therefore, she's like, I didn't see anything. And that's why Scully needed to wear more practical shoes. Got a point there. Because that has to happen. You know, like we can't have her see the aliens yet. So uh, have her trip. She can't see the scarecrow. You know, she can't see what's going on. It has to be mysterious Mm -hmm. still and uh, unsure of what's going on. Well, um, I do have to say that the the narrative description – of Gregor Rovick's end in the third panel on page uh, 17, combined with the image of his fate in the last panel on that page is just, it's so gruesome, so horrific that I kind of like right there, we've all gotten our quarters worth out of this horror comic right there. Like that is, is just, that's awesome awesome and, like gruesomeness and the fact that he's going to be there as it says for three days yeah they're not he's not gonna be found for three days he's just gonna be laying there inside those trees with say every bone broken not one muscle one untorn not one organ unruptured right and then you couple that with the mm-hmm. twisted grotesque image with the of, of gregor with his tongue hanging out and the 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 darkness around the eyes and it's just uh it's just yes this this evil murderous cultist came to a satisfyingly awful end oh and especially that pet yeah that panel the way the way he looks so mm-hmm. mis you know misshapen because he is I, I like you said before i wish we would have got more work from this artist i would have loved to have seen him work on some swamp thing in the 70s i was gonna especially, say very mm-hmm. bernie wrightson in it yeah yes. especially like yeah. some of the unmen anton arcane's like you know genetic deformities that he would create mm-hmm. he could have had some fun designing some of those Absolutely. Absolutely. That's, so, and now we so mangled. He's so mangled in this last image. It's like, right. Uh, but, uh, and, yeah. we have to, and we have to bring the tongue back. We have the tongue on the cover. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a, yes. That's crazy. And, Not a different artists, but somehow that still is part of both images. Mm. So, and again, this all, this, this whole denouement here feels like 
a 1970s TV series because the scarecrow drops Harmony off and then disappears. That's very like almost incredible Hulk mm-hmm. kind of a thing, mm-hmm. you know, and yes. then we have the denouement of the three of them, like sort of wrapping up the, uh, the episode. Uh, and, and, you know, you can just see as they look up in the last, uh, uh, panel here, they look up at the painting and that would be the point at which it would, you know, the, the, the shot would freeze and we get the, uh, uh, executive producer credit over the music sting just before they go to the ending credits. Again, this is not a criticism. I kind of adore this and I want that now. There is nothing I want more right this second than the 1970s weird horror semi-anthology series featuring Jess Duncan, Dave Monroe, and Harmony Maxwell. Now, of course, there is the question of, well, how did they know where to find her? I mean, is the cult listed in the yellow pages? Mm -hmm. Like, how do they know where to go? And if they know where to go, you know, this is my knit to pick and if they knew where to go well then why did it take the police three days to find this guy you think they would have called the cops like hey um yeah this cult guy this cult came in and busted in our apartment and kidnapped somebody well that's what i'm saying these three feel like amateur sleuths of some kind or or people who take matters into their own hands especially harmony the way she kicked ass Mm -hmm. harmony is the muscle of the group that's what's crazy (laughs) yeah I actually believe that, actually, because these other two I guys just com- do I not feel like. Yeah, these other two guys do not appear capable in that way, shape, or form. No, one's the brains. One's my. One's more of the. Uh, well, Jess no, is one's the, the money. Good... Dave is yeah. the brains, and Harmony's the muscle. Yeah, there you go. As a kid, she used to work for some guy, someone named Encyclopedia. She was his bodyguard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, nice reference. Yes. Oh, that's funny. I don't yeah, know how they I I feel like that there's probably in this universe whether it's the Marvel universe or something Marvel adjacent because it feels like it, it could very well it might be just more Marvel adjacent than Marvel universe um that there's just a whole yellow pages sections devoted to rental properties for cultists. So they probably just go in through their Rolodex because they probably have to talk to these guys like every other week. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, "Hey, who have you rented to recently?" Okay, we'll be. Thank you. <laughs> Your check is in the mail. <laughs> that doesn't seem like them. They do all the time. There's a small real estate cottage industry for people selling, you know, renting out warehouses to supervillains and these mansions mm-hmm. to cultists. Absolutely. Oh, and don't forget the and don't forget the glass industry in the Marvel universe is just a powerhouse that cannot be uh, stopped. You know, you are constantly paying for glass in the Marvel universe. Oh yeah. Oh <laughs> so yeah. Those you guys want to make. You want to make that, a fortune, you go into business as a glacier in, in the Marvel universe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Especially in New York. And it's like, if, you, if you're right there, it's like you have your business cards around to everybody who's on Spider-Man's swinging path plan. You're right, just... right. That's, a, <laughs> that's an actual like program that they offer. Yeah. 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 The secret Spider-Man's origin of damage areas. control. <laughs> so this is the secret <laughs> origin of damage control. Exactly. Secret in quotes. It's like everybody knows how they made their money. <laughs> oh, right, right. You know. <laughs> Just like everybody knows Matt Murdock is Daredevil. <sighs> Come on. What are you talking about? Matt Murdock's blind. That's ridiculous. <laughs> I thought it was his brother Mike. I thought he was right, right. No, well, I heard that Mike Murdock must die though. So he was the first Daredevil. Yeah. I don't know what you guys are talking about. That's just all. That's all crazy sauce. That's crazy talk. That crazy talk. Crazy talk. Crazy talk is a great way to describe. Well, 
well-known, respected lawyer, Matt Murdock, has a brother that I've never heard of. What are you talking about? What? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, uh, so anyway, yeah, good, good. This was, this was, this was a, this was a fun one. Although, like I said, I, I find it immensely frustrating that this wasn't just like issue 23 of a great ongoing series. Like that would have made my day, mm-hmm. but it wasn't, it was functionally a one shot. And now we have, uh, done what we do with it. <laughs> yeah. These three characters could have so nicely come back in the nineties. Some of the, with some of the midnight suns series that they did back that they were doing then I could totally see them just fitting right in there. Oh yeah. Supporting cast. And one of them are part of uh, what was the, what was the one book? A dark, the dark hole book, the dark hole. Yeah. They, they're, they're an interesting. They're an interesting trio. I kind of admit they're an interesting trio. And I want to see seeing... Harmony kick butt more. But I'm yes. seeing they only have three appearances, so I'm going to assume it's all the ni- the three 1970s appearances of the Scarecrow, and that's it. Well, I'm yeah. definitely going to be seeking out the other two then, because uh, because uh, I want more of this story. This is this was this was actually a lot of fun in ways I'm not 100 percent sure that uh, Scott Edelman intended it to be fun, but I enjoyed it, so I will make yeah. my own fun with it. No, just so you're aware, by the way, ahead of time. He Edelman, I believe he wrote the Marvel Spotlight issue, but Bill Mantlo is the writer of the Marvel Two and One issue. Well, mm. that's scary. Bill Mantlo could always make good stuff out of other people's. Uh, oh yeah, not uh, saying he abandoned can't. properties. Just so you know, it's not going to be the same creator. Now here's here's something I saw. Since we're not covering, you know, who knows if we're going to cover the other stuff. So here's something I saw in the history for Dave Duncan on the Marvel database, and so it kind of explains maybe a bit to me why he knows where to go but it contradicts the beginning of the issue so here's his history it's only a paragraph is is it naming him dave duncan because here at the top of the last page of our of our dead of night issue uh, now there is only jess duncan and dave monroe kneeling beside her yeah they call him dave duncan now by the way in the notes form it says and one number 18 dave was inexplicably named dave monroe even though his brother jess retained the old surname no explanation was given for this change Probably because they missed the fact that it was also called Dave Monroe in Dead of Night Eleven. Issue. Yes. Yeah. But anyway, so it says history. Dave Duncan was the brother of Jess Duncan, who shared an unknown connection with the Straw Man, a spirit inhabiting a painting that Jess had purchased. Dave disappeared whenever the Straw Man appeared. Oh. Says, well, I was catching on that it was one of these two. Back really? On, yes. So yeah, back when back when they the the cultists leave and was and one figure gets up and and staggers off i was going like oh one of them is the scarecrow but we just don't know which one it is yeah and because it happened after dave was knocked unconscious by that clonk on his head during the fight i'll bet you he doesn't even know no i'm assuming it's a possession thing and he doesn't know but here's the thing so okay so maybe that's how he knows he just maybe he just knew where to go find Mm -hmm. her Right, 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 well, right. How does that explain the character coming out of the painting in the beginning? That's where that's where I was assuming. I mean, you guys were saying that about him coming out of the painting in the beginning. I didn't really assume that. I didn't really think it, it, it was thematically a cool idea, considering that the painting was right there. Although also, it's kind of annoying because when you look at the story, I'm getting on tangents on nitpicks, of, uh, <laughs> that, okay, so we have here that, uh, Snape wanted the painting because he wanted the real painting that was underneath the painting, but 
the the thugs that were looking for the painting didn't recognize that that painting that, that was behind them the whole time that the scarecrow came out of was not the painting that they wanted for their painting. Yeah. No, I I what? figured what? I, no, why no, didn't I they know right. that that was the painting they wanted? But yeah, and so that that's a whole different nitpick. But the scarecrow coming, I did not assume he was coming out of the painting in the first place. I just saw he like, but also I had there was like no explanation for why he's appearing aside from that. No, it's no, like, yeah. Just him following, the, way, except for him following the cultists. I think, I think he, that's the only thing he was doing. I think I'll hit on it. I think I'll hit on it. It's a possession thing. He possesses an inert form in the opening scene. He might have possessed the inert form of the dead guard. Yeah, oh, that's possible. That's definitely I didn't possible. Think about that. Uh-huh. I, I, uh-huh. I, when, you, when you talk about that, I, I did think that that was a possibility, too, because the guard fell against the painting in the first place. So and we so, don't see him again. Basically, what we've established here is this whole scarecrow property is really, really interactive, and I'm having a great time. <laughs> this, this is some of the most fun I've it had with a comic book a in a while. Own, it is a make-your-own-adventure. <laughs> yeah, great. <laughs> if you want Jess to be possessed by the scarecrow, turn to page 12. If you want Dave to be possessed, turn to page 15. It's like, ooh, I'm, I'm see torn what happens about whether, I'm torn whether or not I want Harmony to be possessed by it. Because she's too, she's too cool already. She doesn't need to be possessed by it. Yeah, no, exactly. I was going to say, she's the one person who really, like, yeah. Exactly. She's the one who will fight with him. I mean, it only had these few appearances, but this was this is fun. And you kind of wish there were more of it, but then if there was Definitely. more, would it be as good? Definitely. No, well, you're right. You're right. Probably at some point the, the, the quality would have uh, petered out somewhat or uh, attenuated somewhat. But definitely this little concentrated dose. I had a blast with this. Thank you for asking me to uh, to to participate in this. That if this had continued on and we got more answers, the answers might end up contradicting things that were going on before. So. Let's let let let's not have let's not have too many answers because that gets in the way of the fun. Right, exactly. Let's leave it the way we like it. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, this is pretty. This was a very cool. This is a very cool issue. Adam. Yeah, no, you're right because I've read these three issues, but I've never read the Doctor Strange appearances in the '90s. So who knows how mm-hmm. those go? So. And I guess they start calling him the Straw Man in the future. Is that what happens? Yes. Okay. Because yeah, that's whole... because they got into a thing with uh, DC over the sca- over the name the Scarecrow well, as plus, a villain. The Scarecrow was a villain. The Marvel Scarecrow was definitely an active villain of Ghost Rider in the nineties. Mm-hmm. Ah, so they yes. would have already been a Scarecrow around. Now maybe this scare. I mean, this Scarecrow that Scarecrow had appeared back in let's say tells us Ben's fifty one nineteen sixty four. But if he was dormant at the time, they could have just used another person with the same name. Hmm. But since he was active in the early 90s, I guess they wanted to at least give it another name so you wouldn't think it was the same Scarecrow. Right, right. right. Well, that, But that also, since uh, that's pretty cool, that with all those um, other tie-ins with Doctor Strange and Marvel 2 and 1, that more or less really cements that, oh yeah, this is part of the Marvel Universe even at this point. I was, I was on the fence about whether or not this was part of continuity, but it's like, okay, yeah, this, yeah, is, no. this is Marvel continuity. As of the team-up issue, definitely is. I mean, I forget. Mm-hmm. It's been a while since I read them, so I forget if there's anything in the spotlight issue that explicitly states it. But obviously, mm-hmm. once you meet the thing, you're part of the Marvel Universe. Yeah. Episode's almost over, but let's first cover the feedback. This time we were talking about feedback from episode 122, which Brian and I covered Infinity Entity number four. So first of all, on Facebook... 
Well, I actually don't know if we got likes and shares on Facebook because whatever else on there, it says cannot see privacy settings. So hopefully if you did like and share that episode on Facebook, thank you. But I have no idea who you are. <laughs> on Twitter, at least I can see that. On Twitter, we got likes and retweets from Adeline Rising Podcast, Connor McKenna, Viet Huynh, Toys and Sometimes Jokes, Nexus of All Realities, Capes and Lunatics, Into the Night, David Finn, Chris Lydon, Last Sons of Krypton, Hashtag Source Material, Jason Snake Venable, Mr. Jeffrey Brown, Long Box of Darkness, The Cable Guide Podcast, Brian Z probably disagrees with you, Tim Price, The Pod Crasher, Regular Jim, Steve Sellers, Into the Weird, Hell Dad, Comics in the Golden Age, Dallas Baumgarten, Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, and Vegas Maximus. We also have a couple more people who are liking our Tumblr page, resurrectionsadamwarlock.tumblr.com. So thank you to, oh boy, this is going to be fun, Seth Moa, Reason Endothermica, Kindly Omit Flowers, Captain Corey, and Garbaldi740. So even though I can't say your Tumblr names, thank you to all of you. Now, if you want to hear more of me, for some strange reason, you can find me in other places. I have another show I do, L-E-G-I-O-N-P-O-D-Cast, which is all about the late 80s, early 90s DC series Legion. That's the acronym one, not Legion of Superheroes. You can find that show on the Legion of Substitute Podcasters feed. And since the last episode of this show came out, we've had a couple episodes of that one because it's a weekly show. So episodes 24 to 28. You can also find me guesting on the W2M Network on the show Unspoken Issues, episode 21, in which we covered the One-Shot Clerks comic book back in the 90s. Links for all that will be in the show notes. So this is the What If episode for this year's Mephisto vs. the Podcasters crossover. If you want to hear the, other, the actual episodes of the crossover, go back to episode 123 of this show where we covered Frankenstein Alive Alive. That was myself, Tim Price, and Rick Heineken from... Jeff and Rick present Unpacking the Power of Power Pack, and then actually go to the Unpacking the Power of Power Pack show for episode 67.666 to hear Rick, myself, and Tim cover the remainder of that Frankenstein Alive Alive series. Plus, as part of that crossover on the Marrow of Comics podcast, you can hear John and Maggie and Sean from the Pulp to Pixel Network talking about Tomb of Dracula 44 and Doctor Strange 14, and then jump over to the Pulp to Pixel Network to hear Maggie, John, and Sean talking about the Hellblazer Freezes Over trade. Again, links for everything will be in the show notes. Hi, this is Chris. And this is Brian. And we are the hosts of Inner Demons, the Ghost Rider podcast. And you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast apps for all your Ghost Rider needs. Right on. Well, any final thoughts, guys? Just that I had a blast doing this. So again, thank you very much. Uh, I did not expect to have this much of a this much fun doing this. I thought this was just going to be a little thing. Hey, I'll help out, Al, and, and and now this was wind up like, wow, this was so much fun. Sometimes these small minor characters are some of the most fun to do because exactly there's all the potential and mm-hmm. very little of the disappointment. Right, and when we have the primary character is more or less still a blank slate so 
we need these point of view characters to actually have a story. So that's I think that's where they came in. Uh, and they were and great. They're just fun. They're really good. Yeah. 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 So yeah, likewise, thank you for inviting me on for this one. It's been fun talking with both of you guys oh. about this crazy issue <laughs> and it and it wasn't quite as scary as i was afraid it was going to be so good i won't I, i'll be able to get to sleep tonight yay cool all right new nightmares oh at least if you have nightmares a scarecrow will just be fighting with you uh, uh, that. all right well let's finish up with plugs uh but brian anything you want to talk about real quick i mean i know um, you don't have anything specific but anything that you're into that you want um, people to look at I'll uh, I'll just give a couple of quick, completely the opposite, um, completely the opposite uh, uh, feel and and arena from the horror comic that we've been talking about. Now, the only uh, I always do like to uh, talk up what other pop culture stuff uh, that I am uh, consuming with enjoyment at the time that we do these episodes. And right now I've, I've dipped my toe back into the uh, current season of Japanese anime. Uh, I sort of tend to drift in and out of that fandom and two series that uh, are both uh, licensed by Funimation. So you can find them um, online to stream on the Funimation website uh, are both ter- have both turned out to be I'm sorry. One is Funimation and the other is a Crunchyroll exclusive. They're both turned out to be uh, quite excellent. And I very much uh, recommend them to people who like uh, anime, especially romantic anime which is always sort of my uh, uh, wheelhouse, uh, I would recommend from Funimation. It's called The Day I Became a God. And it's a very funny romantic uh, comedy, uh, with uh, which is turning into a strange sort of techno mystery as it goes along. So I kind of like that. It's being done by the uh, anime studio PA Works, which always does really, really good stuff. So I recommend The Day I Became a God from Funimation. And on Crunchyroll, you can find the Crunchyroll exclusive, or Crunchyroll original, rather. It's called uh, Tonikawa, uh, Over the Moon for You. And it is also a very, uh, very fun romantic comedy uh, uh, that Crunchyroll actually participated in the production of, uh, which is why they got their exclusive rights to it. And it's a very... Very well done, very funny, and very sweet. And that's exactly the sort of thing that I enjoy consuming. So I would give those a shout-out. Other than that, I got nothing. Follow me on Twitter, at Kid Chiron. And for my takes on pro wrestling and anime and music and stuff like that. All right. And Tim? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter, at TimPrice17. And I do have some podcasting things where I'm the regular co-host on the Batgirl Cassandra Kane podcast with Ashford Wright of the Right On Network. Uh, you can find that uh, podcast Twitter feed at Huntress Podcast or on the website thehuntresspodcast.com. Also, I just this year launched a podcast where I'm the primary host with Ashford as my Ed McMahon, basically to keep me straight, uh, <laughs> called the outcasters which is a batman and the outsiders podcast we've been going on uh, for the original 1983 dc comics run and it's been so much fun to revisit had a lot of great response on the interwebs for it so i appreciate everybody out there who's listened and talked up the show it's been great uh so you can find us also on twitter there for at bat outcasters and i guess maybe a fun little pop culture plug I'll give right now is that I'm catching up on a cartoon series that's on, of all things, like the Peacock streaming service. That's NBC's streaming service. It's a 
a series that I first read the graphic novels of, and I'm now enjoying the cartoon on it, that's called Cleopatra in Space. So hmm. if you like sci-fi teenage hijinks and talking cats, it is right up your alley. And I cannot recommend the graphic novels highly enough. I fell in love with Mike Mayhack's uh, character and stories myself. I introduced them to my daughters, and now my daughters have all the co- all the graphic novels, and I just steal them from them once in a while. So, <laughs> but if you want to do something that's a little bit less, if you want to do something that's a little bit less of an investment than the than the graphic novels, check out the series. The characters are actually quite different between the two. There's quite a few differences. So uh, I think I still prefer the graphic novel, but boy, this, the Iron Man series, it's fun. So I, I can't recommend it highly enough. I need to find a podcast that'll let me talk about it some more. I wonder if I can find one out there. But that's it for me. All right. Well, again, guys, thank you. And thank you guys for being on here for this. And don't and links for everything we talked about will be in the show notes. All right. And uh, we'll see you guys next time. And don't forget, the Scarecrow Lives. <laughs> Resurrections, an Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast, is a fan-made production, and no copyright infringement is intended or happening or even understood. The opening music for this podcast is Intro Pompeii by Lino Rise, and the closing music is Dark and Dramatic by DJ Puzzle. Both are licensed by the Creative Commons license. You can find Lino Rise at free-intro-music.com and DJ Puzzle at peaceloveproductions.com. Links to both can be found on the Tumblr page. I gotta find I gotta find audio of some laughing to put in there. <laughs> Probably easy enough. I can do that. Um, this was oh, a lot true. of fun, guys. <laughs> okay, you can do that. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs>